Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The most important questions that a lawyer will ever ask in their case is the first ones. So, what are the first questions asked in Scripture? In this new series, First Questions, we'll explore that answer as we look at each of the first questions that are asked by individuals and characters all throughout the Bible. Let's check out now who's asking the first question in the New Testament. Well, welcome back to this, the fourth part of this series called First Questions, and we have finally arrived at the New Testament. If you were here just a few minutes ago, you heard the reading from Matthew chapter 2, and that's where I'll be diving in this morning. The, the series that we've been doing is essentially a series designed to help us walk through all the first questions of Scripture, um, and we've looked at the first question that was asked in all of Scripture by the serpent. We've, asked, we've looked at God's first question. We've looked at humanity's first question, and this week we're going to look at the first question that's asked in the New Testament. Now, this is interesting because all the weeks prior to this, things that have been important for us to look at are things like the content of the questions, so the words that were actually asked. We've also looked uh, pretty deeply at the tone of the question. Sometimes the tone can either uh, kind of elicit suspicion. Maybe I'm asking this question out of suspicion of whether or not you are who you say you are. Sometimes I'm asking the question, like in the case of God, because I really do care. This is a question of care or concern. And then sometimes, and this is probably the, the most often uh, for us as human beings, we often use questions to pivot responsibility. Right? This is the very first question that, that Cain asked, actually. He asked this question, you know, am I my brother's keeper? And he didn't ask it out of suspicion. He didn't do it out of compassion, like, oh, Lord, if I would have only known, I would have taken better care of him, right? This is not, this is not a, a question of concern or compassion. Cain already knew what he did, and when he asked the question, he was asking it in defense, right? This is a defensive protection of me, of what's mine, and, and I will own that. That's what Cain did in that space. And Cain's question is really an important piece of background information because this morning, we're not looking at the tone or the content of questions. What we're wanting to examine this morning is who's asking and sometimes one of the most important and overlooked pieces of information from anything is not the tone, the content uh, of, of the question, but it's who's asking the question. Because who's asking really does change everything in how we sort of align. And, you know, the example I use is just getting a phone call. Now, some of you, if, if you are my sub-30 age group people watching this morning you don't know what it means to answer a phone call from a number that you don't know, right? You just avoid it. Send it to voicemail. You should be texting me, not answering. But there was a day when we used to answer that phone and not know who was calling, right? And so when we would answer the phone, it would ring, we'd pick it up, and they may say something like, hello, Mr. Burleson there. What's the first thing I'm going to respond to if I don't know that person's voice? Who's asking, right? It's a, it's a simple question. It's a simple question that any of us could have asked, and many of us have heard a thousand times. But who's asking it will change my response. It'll change your response, too. It'll change the way that you engage with that question. For example, you know, somebody might call, Mr. Burleson, are you there? May I ask who's calling? That opening question, maybe it's my son's teacher, right? This is Andrew's teacher from school. Oh, automatically, yes, of course, I'm here. What's going on? Everything okay with Andrew, right? That's, that's my response to the question. Same question, Mr. Burleson there, who's asking? Well, this is so-and-so from such-and-such company. Automatically, I'm sorry, I don't have time right now. I'll talk to you soon, right? Before I even get those words out of my mouth, it's hang-up time, right? If it's a telemarketer, if it's somebody trying to sell me something, a bill collector, I don't have time for this. I'm sorry, I'm breaking up. I'm breaking up. I'll get back with you in a little while. 
Right? That's what we do. This is the way we approach it. And it's all in who's asking the question. Same question, but one asking the question, the one who's asking the question, changes how I receive the question and how I interpret the meaning of the question. Right? The insight that's gained in that moment when I say, who's asking? All the things that swirl around in my head about that person start to come up to the surface. And I could say, well, the person who's asking the question or the question that they're asking, you know, I really place the blame on them. Well, what I'm going to suggest, the blame should not be placed on the question or the questioner. The blame is on us, the interpreter of that question. I'll give you an example, right? I can pick up the same phone. And again, it's my son's teacher. Automatically, my preconceived notions of who that person is and the care that they want to give to me go into effect. And I say, oh, yes, this is Mr. Burleson. How can I help you? Everything okay with my son? Yes, everything's okay with your son. I just wanted to call today on behalf of the PTO to see if we could count on you this year for our fundraiser, right? Will you be taking 50 boxes of donuts home and selling them all for us, right? Automatically, I have been sucked into a pyramid scheme with my teacher my son's teacher. And, and I believed, based on preconceived notions, that that would not be the case. Right? Take the same phone call. This time, it's a bill collector. Hey, I just wanted to let you know. No, no, no. I'm not trying to sell you anything. No, wait, 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 wait. Don't hang up the phone. I just wanted to let you know someone had paid your bill in full. Right? All the things that might fill my mind about that person, it's the preconceived notions that I have that taint the conversation. And in the second case, where the teacher is the one who sells and the bill collector is the one who's providing something for free, the question and the questioner are secondary to your preconceived ideas about the questioner. And this is how I would say it. I would say that oftentimes in our relationships, the reality of other people and their intention is less powerful than our ideas about other people and their intention. Our ideas have, a, have this habit of rising to the surface and taking over every conversation and interaction that we have in life. And this right here becomes one of the biggest roadblocks to relational healing in your life. The way that we allow preconceived notions or prejudices rise up in our heart. And it doesn't matter if I've known that person a day or a decade. We have a unique way of categorizing people that keep us separate and distant from each other. Oh, you're a Christian. Well, I'm not. Oh, you're a single. I'm, I'm married. Oh, you're black. I'm white. You're straight. I'm, I'm, I'm gay. Or you're gay. I'm straight. Right? You're smart. I'm not. All these different categorizations that we have of people. And when we have them, here, let, me, let me speak very quickly about the positive side. On the surface, what this does is it helps us have a catalyst to relational formation. Right? If I have a category in my mind of who you are, and I can put you in that category it can sort of put me on a fast track of relational connection. Oh, I know all this about you based on the fact that I know that you fit into this category. So we fill in a lot of the blanks right up front. But, and this is a big but, <laughs> these categories also create relational distance between us and others. And they prevent us many times from seeing that there is something that we as humanity all hold in common. There's a common denominator to our humanity that oftentimes our categories and our prejudices keep us from seeing. Right? We all, as human beings, we all seek purpose. We all seek beauty in this world. We all seek meaning, and a meaning that is larger than ourselves. And for those of us who come from a religious background, what I would say and what I would suggest is that we all really long a connection with our Creator. That's what we want. We want to be reconnected with our Creator, and in that we find beauty, we find purpose, we find meaning. That's something that's common to all of us. And unfortunately, our careful categorization of people, our preconceived notions of others, they keep us from seeing that in other people. 
They keep us from seeing how other people are seeking and looking after the exact same things as us. And as we turn this morning to Scripture, one of the things that's very interesting about the New Testament is over and over again, Jesus is the master at cutting us off at the knees when it comes to our careful categorization of people. If you think back for just a minute about Jesus and the telling of the prodigal, or I mean the, the, the good Samaritan, right? everything about that story, Jesus set us up to come face to face with our own prejudices. He's like, yep, surprise, it's the Samaritan who does the good deed. It's the Samaritan who took, you never saw that coming, right? Well, not only did Jesus do this, but Jesus' disciples did this. And Matthew was actually pretty good at it. And that's what we see here in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew, as, he, it, as it turns out, places the first question in the mouth of someone who should have never been speaking that question. This is not a new question. This is not a question that wasn't asked in the scriptures. In fact, this is a good old question. Some might describe it as a good old Jewish question that was asked time and time and time again. But Matthew places this question in the mouth of pagans. In the mouth of people who were far from God, who shouldn't have had any connection with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he places it in their mouth. And so the very first question that's asked in all of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 2, comes just after the announcement of Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth, the birth of the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, the one who was foretold to come through the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and Matthew wants us to know that, right? Matthew gives us this careful genealogy of Jesus' background in, in the first chapter, and then he tells us very briefly about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And then when we get to chapter 2, Matthew starts to introduce some tension into your and my life because this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to push you on those preconceived ideas. He's going to expand the world out and expand what God is doing in the world. And this is how he does it. If you're following along, look at verse 1. It says, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we already know this, we read it in the first chapter, wise men, or magi, is the other name given, come from the east into Jerusalem. So wise men from the east came into Jerusalem. And what Matthew is doing here is really simple. And it's hard for us to get this in our minds because you and I know this story like the back of our hand, right? You just put away your nativity sets, and I bet you in, in those nativity sets there were three wise men there with gifts in their hands, right? There probably wasn't a Herod, but there were three wise men that were there. Matthew does this for us. Matthew says, look, there's Herod and there's the wise men, a, a set of kings, right? Herod, the king of the Jews, the one who has been established, and he is a Jewish person, the wise men, pagan rulers who are coming from outside into our area. And Matthew has painstakingly told us that this story is about the Jewish Messiah who would come. And so in the opening verse of chapter 2, he gives us Herod and the Magi. Herod, we all know him. We trust him. He's one of us. He's a Jew like us. We don't like the way that he's lined up with the, the Roman Empire, but we trust him because he's a part of our group. The Magi, we don't trust them, right? Despite what your nativities say, the people that were reading this did not trust the Magi. They were foreign rulers who would seek to come in and, and rule over the Jewish people. In fact, just a few hundred years prior to this moment right here, they were ruling over the Jewish people. They were in control of all the Jewish people in that time. And so whenever the Jewish readers of this ancient document start looking at this and seeing the Magi coming in, they're going, wait a minute. Wait a minute, that, these are the bad guys. Why are they here, right? They don't understand what's going on. And this is how, God, how Matthew sets the story up. The Jewish readers pick up on this. Herod, the good guy. Magi, the bad guys. 
This is how they proceed forward. And then Matthew introduces the question. And the Magi come into Herod's court. They ask the question that we've been asking for centuries. Where is the child who has been born the king of the Jews? Where's the Christ child? Where's the Messiah? We've been waiting on him. Micah has talked about him. Isaiah has talked about him. Jeremiah has talked about him. Zechariah has talked about him. We continue to rehearse this, that the Messiah is coming. Where is the child that we've talked about coming over and over again? And you can hear sort of the undertone in the next few verses of this, like, uh, wait a minute, who's asking? Wait, can I, can I get, just pause a minute. Who's asking this question? Who, who, who am I speaking to? Who can I tell them is calling? Right, that's the undertone that goes to this. The question, as I said, it's not a new question, but it's absolutely imperative that we understand who's asking the question. Why are you asking? Why would you care where this child is born? Are you, are you concerned about him or do you just want to kill him? Because I'm assuming you want to kill him because you don't want him to come and become the Messiah, right? His birth is not for you, it's for us. Why would you care? Why would you care that he's ever been born? So the Jews who excuse me, who are hearing this story, immediately become suspicious of the Magi. And, of course, Matthew responds. There's the question, where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? Immediately they respond. Look at how they go. For we observed, we looked, we saw the star rising, and we've come to pay him homage. Let me go ahead and give you the clear, the clear explanation of why we're here. I know you probably think we're here to kill him. I know you probably think we're here to stop this Messiah from coming. That's not why we're here. We and our astrological signs have demonstrated to us that there is a Messiah who is coming. We're looking at him. We want to pay homage to him. We want to, pay him. We want to worship him. We don't want to challenge his claim to the throne. No, 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 that's not why we're here. We don't want to put an end to him. That's not why we're here. We just want to worship him, right? And it's like, it's like the telemarketer who's like, hey, 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 before you hang up, let me, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I don't want to take a 10-minute survey. I just want to give you something, right? I'm just here to give you something. But as you might have guessed, they don't buy it. They're not buying it at all. In fact, the very next verse, verse 3, says this. When King Herod heard what they asked, he was frightened. And who was frightened with him? All of Jerusalem. Everyone was frightened. It's not just Herod, right? They, they're not just worried. Now, what we're going to discover in a little while is that Herod's fear and the people's fear are two different fears. But we'll get to that in just a little while. Herod is afraid. All of the people of Jerusalem are afraid. And what Herod does in that moment is he calls together all the chief priests and all the scribes who were in the land, and he inquired of them where the Messiah should be born. He's like, remind me once again, where is it that the Messiah is to be born? And because Herod's not the threat, Herod's the good guy in the story, what do they do? They tell him, right? We automatically assume Herod's on our side. Herod's one of us. He's one of our people. We can tell him. He's a Jew just like us. And so the scribes and the chief priests, they gave him all the information they wanted. They, they went on and they told him. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And then they pull out this dusty scroll of Micah and they open it up and they read it and they say, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means among the least rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, a ruler, a king who is to shepherd the people, my people, Israel. And they give this to Herod. They just hand it right over to him because they trust him. And Herod has all this information and the Magi have none. And they didn't give him any of, this, them any of this information, even though they're the ones who asked for the information. They give it to Herod. And then look what Herod does. This is very interesting. Herod doesn't do this in front of the scribes or the people or the chief priests. He actually pulls the Magi aside in secret. And it says, Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star 
had appeared. And he began to question them in that moment. He becomes curious about the child that has been born in this moment. And then he sends them to Bethlehem. And he doesn't send them to Bethlehem so that they can worship, but so he can use them for his own gain. Listen to what he says. He says, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found this child, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. Now, this, this seems subtle. It seems innocent. It seems like, you know, yes, of course, this king would want to worship him in the same way the other kings. It seems like maybe the, the magi, maybe he might believe that the magi were something more, that they weren't about to kill this young king, like that they weren't about to threaten his life. But Herod does exactly uh, what my brother often did when he was on the phone with telemarketers. I don't know if you've ever played this game, but it's the, it's the game of, you know, let's keep them on the line. You ever played that game, right? You just you answer the phone, yes, hello, this is Mr. Burleson. Yeah, yeah, sure, what you got going on, right? And just talk to him for 10 minutes straight. Ask every question. Ask, uh, you know, assume that you are deeply interested in the car, you know, that they are trying to sell you or the insurance that they're trying to sell you. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, you're like, sorry, tricked you, just pulling you along for a little bit of fun. I'll talk to you soon, right? And you hang up the phone. Like, that's what Herod's doing. Herod's just sort of pulling them along in this game for his own game. Not because he wants them to be able to find him, not because he wants them to be able to worship, but because he has some more insidious sort of uh, exercise at play. And we see what happens in the next few verses. As we go on, the Magi just play right into the story. They stay on the line. They complete their journey. They did what they said they were going to do, and this is how it says it. In verse 9, when they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star. Now, this is interesting. It doesn't suggest that the Magi went straight to Bethlehem. In fact, it doesn't tell us where they went. They continued to do what they had already done, which is to follow the star. They used their own, their own uh, tools, and they followed this star once more, and, went and, and, ahead of, and the star went ahead of them, and they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. Not telling us exactly where it is, but it stops over that place. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And then they entered the home. Verse 11, on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They knelt down. They did what? Paid him homage. They did exactly what they said they were going to do. They wanted to go and worship. They opened their treasure chests. They offered him gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. Now, for all the doubts that we had about them, all the confusion about what their intentions are, who they were, if they wanted to kill him or not, they did exactly what they said they were going to do. They set out to worship the newly born Christ child, and they did it. And Matthew wants you to know that this pagan group of people are the first to do it. Not the Jews who had long wanted to see him. Not the ones who had been forecasted about Jesus coming. It's the pagans who come in, and they're the first ones to worship. Now, why is this important? When asking the opening question, the question that we think should have never come out of their mouths, where can we find them? They acted in faith on their answer. Nobody else did. Nobody else in that period of time acted in faith on the answer to that question. And they weren't just interested in having a form of faith that had all the answers, right? They could have gone to Herod and gotten that information from the scribes. He would be born in Bethlehem. Great, have a good day. We're going home. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to act in faith on that answer. They weren't just interested in having a form of faith that had all the answers. They had a form of faith that directed their actions. It directed their actions across the Arabian desert. It directed their actions to give actual gifts. It directed their actions where they would follow the star and not just listen to what the scribes had said about him being born in Bethlehem or what, uh, what uh, Herod had told them about him being born in Bethlehem. Their faith directed their actions. 
And this is what Matthew wants to tell you and me, and this is the first thing he's highlighting for us. Over and over again, Christian faith prioritizes practice over principles. And you say, that, that's weird, right? We're supposed to be a principled group of people. We have to live by a certain principles. Exactly, we have to live by those principles. The point is not to hold those principles in your mind. The point is not to just believe the right things. The point of the Christian faith is to act upon those things. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, when he's writing his epistle to the early church, would say this. He would say, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who, do see, who deceive themselves. It's not about what you hear or know or have acquired. It's about what you do with the faith that you hold in your hands. And sometimes, this is the beautiful part about the New Testament, sometimes it takes an outsider to show us how serious God is about this. Someone that we believe should never have been acting on their faith in this way is exactly the one. And in this case, God uses the pagan astrologers and their astrology to show us how serious he is about a faith that is active. God wants us to act in mercy. He doesn't just want us to talk about mercy. He wants us to be generous. He doesn't want us to learn what the Bible says about generosity. He wants us to live that way. He wants us to act more like him, not just to learn more about who he is. He's not interested in what you know about him. He's interested in how you live like he lives, loves like he loves, acts like he loves in the world. And the Magi teach us this lesson in a profound way because it's a group of people who we never thought would act on their faith, but they do it. And it shocks our system into believing, well, if they can do it, then certainly I can do it. Certainly I can live into that. But that's not the only lesson. Maybe it's not even the most profound lesson that we learn in this moment. For, you know, we're forced to wrestle with each of those places, especially when we look at the Magi. I think we're forced to wrestle with those places in our lives where we've categorized people, where we've locked them into a little box and then, once we lock them in those boxes, we use those people for our own gain. We use them for me and my own, through, through whatever narrative, whatever, whatever you want to look at. Throughout the story of Scripture, original readers would have thought that Herod was the good guy. They would have thought that Herod was the one who was, who was out there defending the Messiah and that the Magi were the bad ones. The Magi were the exploitative pagans who came to kill this young king so that he wouldn't have any right to their throne later on. But in the last verse, Matthew flips the script. He lets us know that's not the case. In the very last verse, it says, And having been warned in a dream, presumably by God or one of his messengers, not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. They left, they went an entirely different way, because unlike them, and you know this already, I'm not going to read the rest of the story, you know this already, Herod didn't actually want to worship the Christ child. Right? Herod wanted to destroy the Christ child. Herod was all about defending himself. You know, if we would keep reading the story, we would find out Herod, he wanted to kill him, he wanted to destroy him, and he kept the pagans on the line in hopes that they actually would do the deed for him. Right? He knew what all of Israel was saying, and he played a political trick. He said, go ahead, go ahead. We'll watch out for you. Once, you. once you find out where he is, come back and talk to me. All the while hoping that they would actually do what everybody believed they would do, and that is kill the Christ child. Because he wanted him dead. And we know that's reality, because after they left, they went home another route. Herod went out furious, and he killed all the toddlers in the land, all the toddler boys. As he was actually feeling threatened. Not the Magi. The Magi didn't feel threatened. Herod felt threatened. 
He took their perceived innocence, he took the perceived notion of who they were, and he used it for his own gain. He sent them on their way, hopes that they would kill the Christ child, and when they didn't, he did. And what Herod did here is what so many of us do, who have knowledge that we think we shouldn't have, or to others who have knowledge that we think they shouldn't have. We exploit them for our own gain. We pull from them for our own gain. We use them for our own gain. And I, I know none of us like that word, exploit. We don't, we don't like to use that. We certainly don't like to use that word about ourselves, right? We're not exploiting anybody. We don't like to think that we do this. But exploitation is something that I think every human being can do easily because they can justify it so easily. That's what's happened throughout history. Every time we categorize people, we justify our exploitation of other people because we believe that they're holding on to something that they really shouldn't have to begin with. And this is what Herod did to the Magi. It's what colonizers did to the natives. They would come in and they would see natural resources there and they would say, oh, you, you shouldn't have that. You don't even know what to do with that. Let me take that from you. Because of the way that they've categorized people. The way they've locked people into boxes and they exploit them for their own good. They take for their own good. And if they, the natives or any other group that we've categorized, if they ever step outside of the boundaries that we've placed around them and they step into my boundaries... I'm going to take those things off their hands for their own good. And that's how, we, that's how we morally explain it, right? When others have resources that are out of character for them, we exploit them, quote, for their own good. Right? It's for their own good that we're doing this. They shouldn't have that. They shouldn't use that. And we participate in exploitation in this way when we find vulnerability and innocence in others and use it. Unfortunately, you know, one of the places I think very quickly I see this and we see it all over the place whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in our communities and our governments or whatever but on a really personal level I, I get to see this and unfortunately see it all the time in couples who are experiencing divorce where they will exploit the innocence of their children over and against each other they'll use what their child has said to use it against their mom or their dad or whatever it is and we exploit innocence for our own gain categorized people in this way and this is the behavior that Arid participated in but it's also the behavior that you and I participate in every time we take advantage of other people every time we live into those categorizations and those prejudices and, and I think the gift that the Magi brings to us the gift that they're offering to us in their explanation is one that, says, that reminds us of, yes, the importance of practice over principle. Practice is always going to be important. Acting on your faith is always going to be important. But it's also one that reminds us about the downfall of Herod. And the downfall of Herod is that his own prejudice, and I would say it this way for us, our prejudice, yes, they serve me, but they also prevent me from finding peace. Right? They, they were in service. His prejudice against the Magi was in service to him. He was using them for himself. But what's interesting about it is that when they left, he still didn't have peace. And he runs out of his house and across the country with all of his people, destroying life after life because he could never find peace. And the same thing is true for you and me. The prejudices, prejudices that we hold in our heart, the prejudgments that we make about others around us, the way we categorize people around us, they do serve you. They serve your own selfish needs, but let me be very clear, they also prevent you from being able to find any real peace in your life, from being able to settle into the peace that God wants for you. And we hold them sometimes because they do make our world simple. They do help us as we navigate the world. They make it easier for our world to uh, be interpreted, but they also are the very thing that are going to 
limit you from ever being able to find peace and reconciliation with others around you. Because human beings were just too complicated to categorize, to minimize in that way. And so this morning, what I want to do, really simply as we wrap up this morning, is I want to call us to a place where we name our prejudices. And I'm not asking you to name them in the chat feed below. I just want you to name them between you and God this morning. What are the prejudices that we hold in our heart that categorize people and utilize people for our own gain? What are the spaces in our lives where we have allowed these prejudgments about people to rise up? And this is important work. It's, it's hard work, but it's important. And here's, here's why it's important. It's important to consider because our prejudices might be the very thing that are keeping us from finding the Christ child. In the same way that for Herod, it was his prejudice that kept him from actually discovering where the, the Christ child was. In our own lives, it's our prejudices and the way that God might be moving through other people and pointing us towards himself through other people that keeps us from finding the Christ child today, from finding God's manifestation in the world today. Right? Herod never found the Christ child by exploiting the Magi, and he didn't find them through the violence that he experienced on the other side of that. He never found the Christ child. He never found the peace that that Christ child could give him. He lived tormented because of that. So my encouragement this morning is to not let your preconceived notions about others and other people in your life limit you from seeing where God might be working, limit you from seeing how God wants to work in this world. Allow God to start to remove those things from your life. I know, it, I know it's a little bit more complex. I get it. I understand why we have all those preconceived categories working in our minds. It makes things easier in the world. But it prevents us from seeing where God might be working in the world, where God might be calling you in the world, where God might be working through others to speak to you in the world. And this is difficult. And it's so difficult. It, as we close this morning, the, the band is going to sing one final song. It really is one of my favorite songs. Uh, it's an old one, but it's a good one. It's called Breathe. This is the air I breathe. And I often think of this song, when I do, I think of a story one of my professors in college told, Dr. Cross, Terry Cross. He used the example of a movie called The Abyss. And I don't know if you remember this movie, but in this movie, there was a group of d divers who were going to the deepest part of the ocean. The only way to get to the deepest part of the ocean was to learn how to breathe in a new way. They would put the helmets on and the helmets would fill up with oxygenated water and then they would have to suck that water in which would simulate drowning and they would think their bodies for just a minute would think they're actually drowning. But that water, that oxygenated water, as difficult as it was to do that work, to take that in, was the thing that would take them to deeper depths than they had ever been. It was the thing that would open up a brand new world in a way that they had never seen before. And so when we sing this song, this is the air I breathe, this is the air I breathe, this is the air you breathe. This is the hard work you do. It's not easy. It doesn't come overnight. But it's a work that we as Christians are called to every single day. This is the air we breathe. To challenge our assumptions and to see the way that God has created us for beauty. Created us all to be his sons and daughters. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your call to us through stories like this, stories that not only hi highlight ancient prejudice, but they highlight it in our own lives. They highlight the way that 
There are times where we perhaps have missed you at work in this world because of the way that we categorize people, the way that we limit folks. And God, I ask this morning that whatever those preconceived notions about others are in our hearts, that you would start to pull them back, that you would pull them off of us, and that you would help us breathe in the air of your spirit. And I know that breath is uncomfortable and it challenges us and changes us and it may feel like it's taking our very life away. But as we take it in, I know, God, it will take us into new depths of connection with you. So do that work, Spirit of God, as we sing this song. Do that work in you, your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.